Uh, what we want to talk about today, there'll be a big part of you that doesn't believe what we'll be talking about today. And so I, I need you, if you've got your Bible, have it handy. We are doing the sermon notes a bit differently today because uh, I had an initial draft of this message and we have, on a Thursday, we get together as a teaching team uh, and uh, as we wrestled it through, it became clear my initial draft wasn't good enough. Uh, that, that what we're talking about today is uh, right at the pointy end of some of the most complex relationships we have as human beings and, and we need to do it justice. So that's why I'd encourage you to have your, your Bibles ready. Uh, also, just to say, one of the, what, what we're doing as a church and have been doing over the last three or four years is gradually making our way through the book of Matthew. Uh, and the first time we engaged with it was uh, Christmas 2019, I believe. We looked at the Christmas story, then uh, the following year we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and then we've uh, looked at last year at uh, the teachings of Jesus, and this year we, we're going to finish uh, the, Jesus, uh, Jesus, looking at Jesus' example through the book of Matthew, and we'll actually finish our time in Matthew. Uh, but one of the, the dangers and challenges of any uh, engagement with the Bible on a Sunday morning is you can only look a little bit. Uh, and as we come to talk about what does it mean to be single, what does it mean to be married, what does it mean to be divorced, all these verses come in a context. And we need to, before we look specifically at those verses, we need to look at the context and also look at what does our culture say, what is normal, because like I said, I, I believe that one of the greatest challenges for Christians today is we're more shaped by our culture than we are by Jesus. And so we need to look at, okay, what does the Bible actually say in all this? Uh, as we dive in, just you'll remember last week we were finishing off Matthew chapter 17 and we discovered that we're all God's kids and then Matthew 18, we spent about five or six weeks on last year, and it's uh, many commentators call that chapter God's recipe for community. That I'm, I'm actually halfway through working on a book uh, about Matthew chapter 18, because I think it's profound, and I think there's a whole bunch of things in there we know Jesus teaches, but we actively avoid doing. Uh, and so I, I want to actually look at it and spend some time unpacking that. A uh, couple of things, Jesus, just in terms of the context and the journeys, we get to this discussion about singleness and divorce. Uh, Jesus leads out of Matthew 17 and the very first thing, as he, he's just introduced the idea that we're God's kids and the very first thing he says in Matthew chapter 18 is, if you want to come to the kingdom of God, you've got to come like a little kid. Stop trying to be, you know, special. Stop trying to be the superhero. You've got to come like a little kid. And I, I think the, the central message of Matthew chapter 18 uh, hinges on this beautiful uh, verse. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Right up front, but one, of the, one of the things I say over and over again, but I'm still in the process of believing, and I know, I, I believe this is true about you too, uh, that 
we as a Christian church are called together. We're called to be God's family together. We are shaped by a culture that says it's, it's about you. You've got to work out what you think. You've got to trust your own integrity. You've got to work it all out yourself. Right up front, Jesus is saying, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There's something special, something extra that happens when you're not on your own. And this is a theme right the way through the Bible. But our culture is louder than that. Our culture says you've got to have personal integrity. You've got to listen to your own heart, follow your own heart. Despite the fact the Bible says, no, you actually need a few people around you who love you and have got the courage to tell you when you're being an idiot. That's, that's what the Bible says. And also encourage the best of who you are. Jesus' heart for us is that we would actually have not just Sunday morning relationships with each other, but that we would have intimate relationships with each other. I think it's a travesty that the word intimate has been adopted by our culture mainly to mean sexual. We all need intimate relationships. Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one life, one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. For Jesus, the central question is loving each other. And there is no way to love someone without letting them into your heart. Coming and bouncing off people on a Sunday morning is not, I don't think, what Jesus has in mind. He has the kind of relationships where people actually know you and you know people and they know the best of you and they know the worst of you. Peter, who towards the end of his life is trying to help the churches hold it together, says this, he says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so, you, so that you have sincere love for each other, he says this, love one another deeply from the heart. I don't think you believe this. I might be wrong. Because I don't think our culture shapes us to do this. I don't think we believe the church is a place where we love each other deeply from the heart. We'll often come and have wonderful times of worship, which is right and what we should be doing. But the idea that we are a family where we love each other deeply... This is very clearly, right the way through the New Testament, Jesus' heart for the church. It's also very complicated. I don't know if you've noticed. Some people are easier to love than others. That's why I'm writing this book on Matthew 18, and that's why Jesus spends a whole chapter saying, if you want to love people, here's some of the practical things it's going to mean. You're going to need to learn how to confront people, he says. You're going to need to learn how to put others before yourself. You're going to, and he spends the most time saying, guess what? You're going to have to learn how to forgive people. For Jesus, the idea isn't that we come to church on a Sunday morning and have a nice time together. It is that we are a family, the family of God. And so I actually think I'm going to tackle this section on divorce and marriage uh, and singleness backwards because I, I think uh, we have taken some of these verses out of context and used them to abuse people. And so I, I want to 
read the whole thing in context. I want you to keep in mind everything that Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 17, and I'd really encourage you to go back and look at Matthew chapter 18. But I want to come back and start with uh, the last verses Jan read, and they are these. Uh, Then the people brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he'd placed his hands on them, he went from there. It's interesting, isn't it? One of the great challenges in every... I've got really good mates who are pastors. We, we, We hang out together. We had a really special time a week or so ago just as the Eastern Shore pastors. One of the things that every church has a challenge with is kids' church. Finding people to look after the kids. Uh, and here you have the kids coming to Jesus and the disciples saying, come on, Jesus is a serious person. He doesn't have time for kids. And Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. You, you, you just don't get it. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Up front, before we get to talking about divorce and singleness and marriage... We need to talk about what the purpose of a community is. Right the way through the Old Testament, whenever the prophets would come, they would ask about three or four groups of people. They would always ask about the widows, the orphans, the strangers and the poor. They'd always ask about the weakest people in a community. And in any community, the measure of how a community is going is its kids, the weakest people in the community. One of the, right up front, as we begin we, to talk about marriage and singleness and community and divorce, we need to say one of the great problems for us is we have a faulty idea of what community is and what relationships are, and that faulty idea gets in the road. Most of us, experience, well, if the stats can be believed, we're in the middle of an, a loneliness epidemic in our country. Uh, and I, I think, it's been a, look, it's been a, a fascinating journey of the last few weeks with my dad, who's in his last days. Uh, it's been really encouraging to see the number of people coming and, and saying the impact he's, he's had on their, their lives. Um, but one of the things he used to say regularly, and I, I, I pinch it every now and then, it's because it's a really good measure. It's this, if I was to give you a pen and paper right now and get you to write down the names of people who know what life is like for you, I wonder how long the list would be. Did you get the question? If you would have a piece of paper and write down the names of people who know what life is like for you. That list measures the level that you, you would currently say you're, measuring, you're experiencing community. We live in a culture that steers us away from community, that steers us to individualism. Just a quick check, would there be anybody, I can't see the hands in Lena Valley, so sorry about that, and I can't see them at home, but also we'll use Mornington as a sample size. Would there be anybody in the room with more than 15 names on a list like that who you would say know what life is like for you? Would there be anybody with more than 10 names on a list like that? 
more than five. Okay, so we've probably got half a dozen or more that we would have more than five. We'll, we'll stop there. Do you get the idea? One of the, we talk about loving each other. We talk about community. But I think what Jesus in Matthew 18 is saying is this is the practice of it and it's jolly hard work. I, John Mark Comer is somebody I find really helpful and he says this, every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? Where have I drifted from my identity and inheritance? The temptation for us in the West is less to atheism, and this is, is true for everybody, he's, talking, he's not just talking about Christians, less to atheism and more to a do-it-yourself approach to faith that's a mix of the way of Jesus. You'll find a lot of the the people who call themselves atheists are very focused on human rights or very focused on some things that Jesus cares about. A mix of the way of Jesus, consumerism, secular sex ethics and radical individualism. That for most of us, this is the worldview we actually live in and are shaped by. And for us in the church, we've even produced an individualistic approach to church that says church is here to meet my needs rather than a family I belong to and so when church is no longer meeting my needs I go and find somewhere else and I become a consumer of church one of the things that's really important to hear and what Jesus is saying about the little kids is community doesn't exist for you Community doesn't exist for you. If you're looking for a community to meet your needs, you're actually dangerous. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earned and sacrificial. If you have in your mind the kind of community you need to feel better, you're actually dangerous in community because you're dealing with an idea in your head rather than the messy, real people in front of you. And community exists. A healthy community exists for its weakest members. A healthy community exists for its weakest members. And I reckon for any church, a healthy community exists for its kids, at least its kids. They are the measure, whether we've got space or not. Jesus is about to talk about a word that is completely old-fashioned. He doesn't actually use this word. And when I looked it up in the dictionary, it actually says next to it, old-fashioned. And it's the word chastity. It is the word chastity. And... That's why I'm, I'm going to be saying stuff this morning that I don't think many of us actually believe, despite the fact it's in the Bible. What is chastity? According to the Collins Dictionary, in addition to being an old-fashioned word, it is the state of not having sex with anybody or of only having sex with your husband or wife. 
One of the things about chastity, or, many, or another way to put it is managing your sex drive, is that if, if in our culture it is not normal, and the only way to effectively manage your sex drive is to have something in your life more important than you. And we live in a world that says there is nothing more important than you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way as he was writing from prison. He says, The essential thing about chastity is not a renunciation of pleasure, but an all-encompassing orientation of life towards a goal. Where there is no such orientation, chastity inevitably deteriorates into the ridiculous. If you don't have anything in your life more important than you, your drives, your inner world, your, your sex drive will be the most important thing in your life. Because there's nothing outside you to measure yourself against. There's a principle that Jesus said over and over again that cuts to the heart of what he's going to say about being single and being married. And it's this. And as I've already told you numerous times, he says this in every gospel. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, the central point there isn't losing your life, but it's losing your life for Jesus. What he is saying there is, if you want to follow what feels good, if you want to trust your own internal world and let your, the messiness of your internal world set your agenda, feel free to do it, but you will lose your life. But if you're ready to give up your life for Jesus' sake, you will actually find your life. Bonhoeffer says you need an all-encompassing goal beyond yourself. The secret to managing our sexuality isn't to focus on sexuality. It's to have something in your life more important than you. And that's what Jesus is trying to say as he after he finishes talking about marriage and singleness, gets people focused on kids. And say, focus on the kids. Make space for the kids. Because that's where you're going to find the kingdom. And he goes before that and begins to talk about uh, what it means to be single. So as I said, we're going to take this backwards. Now, Again, let's, let's see if we can be honest about what, how our... And, uh, sorry, we'll be talking about... We'll be using language this morning we wouldn't normally use in church, but Jesus does, so we just have to cope with it. Uh, we need to talk about how, what is normal in terms of sexuality in our world and, and, and come to terms with the fact most of us are shaped by this world. The secular world's dominant idea is that human beings are animals. This is from John Mark Comer, again from the book Live No Lies. Simply aided by time and chance to evolve into the dominant species on our planet, monogamy is not natural. 
as we rarely see it in other animals. In fact, men evolved to spread their seed over as many women as possible for the survival of our species. Evolutionary biology's way of saying boys will be boys. In such an idea matrix, the prevailing consensus is sex is just play for grown-ups. What's the big deal? It's just an animal pleasure, no different from hunger or thirst. If you do pursue marriage, that's fine. Be true to yourself, but you should at least live with your partner for a while and make sure you're a good fit. And if it doesn't work out, the important thing is to be happy. After all, there's no meaning to life, it's just a glorious accident. And of course, marriage, sexual norms, and even gender itself are all social constructs, constructs often created by elites to maintain power. That's, that would be the dominant secular worldview, spelled out by John Mark Comer. So that's why, if we're, we've, we're shaped in this world, what, what does it mean to take Jesus' word seriously? What does it mean to organise your life for the sake of something beyond yourself? Our world, as I said, is obsessed with sex. But often Christians are too, just in a different kind of way. The, what became known as the purity culture uh, in, through the 90s and 2000s in the Christian church does reject initially the world's ideas about sex, but replaces them with this idealisation of marriage as the answer to uncontrolled sexual urges. And that can lead to a culture of shame, where rather than being taught how to manage their sex drives in healthy ways, Christian kids are just told to wait and that marriage will fix all their problems. That can lead to unhealthy marriages and Christian kids getting into all kinds of difficult situations. It's still an idealisation of sex. We need a healthy community that teaches us how to manage our sex drives in healthy ways. So, because being single is an experience that we all have, let's start there as Jesus... Uh, if you've got your Bibles, to Matthew 19, verse 10... Now, Jesus has just unpacked his understanding of marriage and he says, and as he does, the disciples say, well, if, you, if, if you're that serious about marriage, no one should get married, it was, is the disciples' response. He said, they say, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those, those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. What is a eunuch? Uh, there's no polite way to put this. Uh, uh, a eunuch is a male that's had his testes chopped off. Uh, and, and when Jesus says there are eunuchs who were born that way, he's saying some people are born without fully functioning sexual organs. Uh, he's saying in that culture at that time, there were people, slaves, had the operation forced on them and, that, and it was made that way by other people. But then he says, 
Here's, there are people who choose to put the kingdom of God first rather than put their sex drive first, is what he's saying. And he says, you, you do it for the sake of the kingdom. One of the, one of the things that really doesn't work is trying to do it for the sake of guilt. One of the things that doesn't work is going, I, I won't focus on sex, I won't focus on sex, I won't focus on sex. No, you, you need an external focus beyond yourself. But what is clear, and this is, this is something that our culture doesn't buy, and I don't, I'm not even sure that the Christian church fully buys, it is absolutely possible to have a whole and fulfilled life and not have sex. If you feel part of you pushing back at that language, it's because that's the part that's been shaped by this culture. We live in a culture that cannot imagine the possibility of finding fulfilment outside of the ability to express sexuality through the act of sex. Titus says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The only thing that makes it possible though, as we've already said, is to have a goal in your life, to have people in your life more important than you, to genuinely have a purpose that is worth dying for. If you've got something in your life worth dying for, then you're not the centre of the show. And ultimately, Jesus invites us to be ready to die for him, to keep him in view. But he also gives us others. And I think it's not an accident he focuses on the little kids. He said, organise yourself around the little kids in your life or the, the, the hurt people in your life, the people who are hurting, who are, who are weak. If you organise yourself around them, it'll call you out of your self-obsession. Jesus understands what Bonhoeffer understands, that focusing on, your, on sex is unhealthy. But by focusing on the external process of the external purpose of the kingdom of God, chastity doesn't have to be an old-fashioned word. Chastity should be a word that describes all Christians. Remember, chastity is the choice to abstain from sex generally or to abstain from sex with someone other than your partner. So chastity is a word that should describe all Christians. The Apostle Paul says it'd be better if you could stay single. Which again, I, I think we in the Christian church have underplayed. We, we have a, a culture that says you haven't quite made it till you're married. And if you haven't picked that up in the Christian church, that's wonderful. I, I may be putting that on you. But I think there's this subtext often in the Christian church that says you're not quite right until you're married, despite the fact that Jesus was single and the Apostle Paul was single. Uh, and that, they, they did pretty well in terms of living their faith and as, as examples for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, follow my example. Paul writes this, he says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. So he's saying an unmarried person, unmarried man is externally focused on what Jesus' will is. 
But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. He goes on to say exactly the same thing about women. One of the truths, in th- whenever the church has been at its best, it's often been led by single people, right the way through church history. Because single people have the space that married people, particularly married people with young kids, just don't have. They have the space to care for people in ways that married people don't care, have the space to care for people. One of my heroes is my Auntie Anne. Uh, she, you'll meet her if you haven't met her up at Poatina. She often comes and connects. Uh, she has not ever married in her life. But she became the glue that held an international mission movement together because she loved, she, she didn't have any children of her, biological children of her own, but she has children all over the world who she is ready to die for, ready to fight for. She is the glue that held fusion together, in my view. And I, I think we've got to find a way to honour and create space for the single people amongst us. And as we've already said, the church is a place where you're meant to be able to have intimate relationships. Not being married should not be a reason not to have intimacy. We're meant to be this family where it's okay to be real and honest with each other. Where it's okay to to know what love is without having to have sex. This is the the, the vision that Jesus has for his church. The other challenge the church has is unhealthy marriages. And Jesus begins this chapter by tackling unhealthy marriages. Uh, The Pharisees come and try and trap him. They are trying to trap him by getting to talk about divorce in the place called Perea, which is under the the direction of Herod. Uh, now, what do you know about Herod? And, and why did John get in trouble for, uh, for speaking against Herod? Do you know? Yeah, he, he married his brother's wife and John said, that's not okay. <laughs> and John lost his head for it, ultimately. So the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. But, but the truth is, one of the things you won't know, again, through just reading the Bible, is that this was the hot topic of the hot theological topic of the day. There are two rabbinic schools of thought. There is the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. And they are all arguing over Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, of divorce, gives it to her and sends it from, sends it from the house and it's all okay, basically. And um, what Shammai would want to say is this only applied in the case of sexual immorality, but Hillel literally got the writing and he says this applies uh, for any reason whatsoever, even trivial things like bad cooking or if there is a prettier woman, that's a good enough reason to divorce. So this was, at, this was the debate happening at, at the time they asked Jesus this question. One of the things I also didn't understand, in Jewish Bible study, the further back you go in uh, the Bible, the more something has weight, the more something can be trusted. Does that make sense? So Micah, which is, seems to be fairly 
clear, or Malachi, which seems really fairly clear about divorce, which we'll talk about, um, is, doesn't carry the same weight as Deuteronomy. So that's why they're arguing about Deuteronomy. Um, but Jesus comes and he goes about as far back as you can go. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he's actually quoting Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In referencing Genesis 1.27, he is making clear something that the Jewish men seem to have forgotten, that both men and women are created in the image of God. Which is what Genesis uh, chapter 1 says. And, he, and he's clearly saying, it is not okay for a bloke to write off a woman just because he's found a better offer, is what he's saying. But he's also saying this, that men and women together are created in the image of God. That there is a sense in which you, as a you, you yourself are created in the image of God, but there is something about there are differences, I don't know if you've noticed this, between men and women, uh, and there's something about us being together. Now, I've got to say up front, we as a culture are having a big discussion about what is gender and what is sex and how does all that work. There is, uh, it, it is absolutely true that there are cultural things that, that we believe are associated with men or with women that are not to do with the Bible, they're just to do with our culture. Like it's, boys don't always have to wear blue, you know. Uh, and, and it's okay for girls to like trucks and cars and wear jeans, you know. It's important to get that clear. But also, so there's a difference between what we call gender and what we call sex. But we've had to come up with, which there is a biological reality to do with the fact that the, the, the sexual biological system is the only biological system that is incomplete in, the, in one person's body. It needs two people of different sexes to come together to be complete and achieve its goal. And we, we've begun a discussion about this that will be an ongoing discussion. Um, but right up front, what Jesus is saying is you've got to understand men and women together are important. And there's something about being one but not the same that is critical in reflecting who God is. And so Jesus is getting that out up the front and in referencing chapter 2, what he's saying is marriage is not about your feelings. Marriage is not about your feelings. He's saying, uh, Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh the hebrew the hebrew word for united there is not i feel attracted to you i like you it's nothing it's actually got nothing to do with emotion it means hold fast cling to be to be joined fast to be stuck together it carries a much stronger picture than simply the the english word united it's not about romance but it's about commitment and so what 
Jesus is saying is, in quoting Genesis, you don't get to write the other partner off, that together you are to reflect in a particular way who God is, and there's a commitment that is central to what marriage is about. And your feelings might come and go, but the commitment is meant to stay. And that idea is carried through to one of the most misunderstood uh, bits talking about marriage, and I'd love to have more time to unpack it, but Ephesians 5 talks about wives submitting yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord, and husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The word there for submit in our culture means obey. Uh, The Greek word literally means to put them ahead of yourself. And both, what is clear, in, and at some point we need to talk more about this, but in a Christian marriage, that the, the, the man and the woman's relationship is meant to be about mutual submission. About putting, and by submission, it's not about obedience, it's about putting the other person in front of you. Is what, and that somehow, and, and uh, Bible commentators agree that the, the standard set for men is actually much higher than the standard set for women in this, because in that culture, men were dominant. And in our culture too, I think we're having conversations about what all that means. But, but what Jesus is saying and all he's saying is there's something sacred and important about Christian marriage that is about how it represents God and who he is. Jesus actually then, after quoting those two verses, provides his commentary on the verses in verse 6 where he says, So they're no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so it's important to understand this. From a Christian perspective, marriage is much more than a piece of paper you sign. It is a promise you make before God. In a civil marriage, you stand before a representative of the government and make promises to live together for the rest of your lives. The understanding of a Christian marriage is you're standing before God and making those same promises. In Australia, uh, pastors can be representatives of the government, so you can do both. You can have a Christian and a civil marriage at the same time. In a place like France, you can't. They're separate things. The civil marriage and the Christian marriage are, are different things. What uh, we see in Malachi is that the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. So from a Christian perspective, there's a, a, a deep weight when it comes to marriage. Well, the Pharisees come back at Jesus quickly and say, well, why did Moses say it was okay to get divorced then? And... Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, the King James, I think, did us a disservice because it translated the word porneia as fornication. Fornication there means illicit sexual, like having having an affair. But the word porneia is much broader. It, It means sexual immorality of any kind. And what Jesus is saying is, look, marriage is sacred and unless one partner 
violates the promises at a, at a level that is irreparable, you, it's best to try and hang on and make it work. Now, Paul goes on and gives another reason why it's okay to get divorced. He says, uh, if the unbeliever, if, if the other party is acting as or is actually an unbeliever, and if they leave, the brother or sister isn't bound in such circumstances and God has called us to live at peace. So the sense that, so it's interesting, is the Apostle Paul knew what Jesus' teaching was, but also made it clear that there is another reason that, it's okay, that divorce is okay. Malachi actually finishes by saying, um, the man who hates and divorces his wife does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and don't be unfaithful. One of the sad things about the misreading of uh, the New Testament has often been that men in Christian marriages have used it as an excuse to dominate and there have been too many, sadly, there's too many occasions where domestic violence has been perpetuated by men who are saying, you must submit to me, which misreads what he's saying. And you see what it says in Malachi, if the one partner is doing violence to the one they should protect. There is no excuse for abuse. There is no excuse for domestic violence. Uh, and can I just say, if you are somebody who is currently experiencing that, the, we've actually got the, the phone number to call for that, but also uh, we want to, as a church, be with you and stand with you and help you find the help you need. We want to be the kind of church where we don't keep dark things hidden in dark closets. Because abuse, allowing abuse to continue doesn't help anybody. So it is clear that Jesus values the sanctity of marriage that really wants to place a high burden on it. And one of the truths for the Christian church is I think often we, we take, make divorce a bit too easy. Uh, these days, it didn't used to be that way, but it often has been a point of pain and shame as well for Christians. So we often get the balance wrong. Um, but what, what is true is Jesus didn't see divorce as terminal. Do you know, the, the, who, who, who was the very first evangelist that, we, that was recorded, do you know? It was a... a well, it depends how you measure it, but the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, do you know how many husbands she'd had? Five husbands. And the bloke she was currently living with wasn't a husband. And Jesus chooses her to bring a whole town to faith. We want to be the kind of redemptive community where your past doesn't have to determine your future because that's what the gospel is. We want to be a kind of community where single people are valued and able to bring the full weight of their contribution and sometimes to, to lead us and bring all that they can bring and not organise ourselves around married people, which too often churches do. We want, we want to be the kind of church where people who are suffering in marriages that are abusive know it's safe to talk and that they will be loved and they will be cared for. We want to be the kind of church that is the redemptive community that Jesus is talking about where we actually have 
intimate relationships with people other than the people we have sex with. That it's possible to have intimate relationships apart from sex. I don't think we have the right view of what the church is meant to be. And I think we need Jesus' help to gradually help us become the kind of community he has in view. In 1 John it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and see a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As I stand before you as your pastor, I know I've got a journey. I, I still am so affected by our culture that I, it's, I can easily slip into thinking church is what we do on a Sunday morning. And I think, if I'm to be honest with you, I think we have a way to go to be the kind of family that Jesus is talking about. That's okay. The early church also had a way to go. But we need to face the places where we've been more shaped by our culture than by the gospel and realise that the kind of redemptive community that Jesus is talking about is built by all of us, not just by the pastor or the worship team. It's built by every person who chooses to love, not just with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, as Dan and I were talking about this, and I'll invite the band to come up at Lena Valley and they'll lead us in singing as we come. Uh, Dan said to me, well, as we look at this, I think if you get through this sermon, you'll have managed to offend everybody except the people who believe that dogs go to heaven. So we'll leave that for another service. <laughs> you know. No, but what, what we're saying is, I know a lot, of, a lot of what I've been saying today. We'll be touching on points of pain. And even if it's not, even if... Uh, you as a single person feel thoroughly welcomed and have, have the, all the space you need and you as a married person feel like you have all the, the resources and everything you need or of you as someone who's been through divorce feel like the church has created the space for you like, like, it, like it should. That's really good news. But I, I think to, we're, we are on a journey to be the kind of redemptive community that Jesus talks about. And I'd encourage you to go back and read Matthew 18 and you'll see it doesn't happen accidentally. I believe we are, many of us are actively avoiding doing the things that Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 18. And they're the kinds of things we need all of us to do, not just the pastors or the elders. Or And as Robin will tell you and remind you, I, I, I think this is the pointy end. This is, this is where we, we're talking about our relationships. And I, I feel like God is wanting to challenge us. What does it mean to take his word seriously, to be the kind of church he's actually calling us to be, not to avoid the difficult discussions, but to step into where he's got us to go? I might just pray and then I'll, the band will lead us to one last song. Jesus, help. In our culture, I don't know anybody who's made it through to adulthood without sexual stuff causing some levels of pain. Uh, I don't know any marriage <laughs> that has it completely together and has all that they need. I don't know any single person 
who has has all that they need in terms of intimate relationships and the ability to to step into the calling you have for them. Jesus, help us be the kind of community. Help shape us. Help us face the stuff that holds us back from being the kind of community you're talking about. And help us be the kind of community that where we can work together to strengthen the marriages amongst us, where we can work together to support the singles amongst us, and where we can step forward and not be robbed of our future by our pasts. Thank you for the beautiful word of your amazing grace. And thank you that that is the definition that our community is built on. Help us live as though that's true, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.